Um, Anyway, it's a delight to have all of you here today. I do hope you've had a great Father's Day. I've had a crazy busy week, but it's been a fun week in a lot of ways. And one of the things I did this week that I rarely have time to do is I took a little time to read a biography on uh, uh, Albert Einstein. And one of the things that struck me as I read it was Einstein had this intense love for puzzles. And supposedly you could give him a puzzle and he would figure it out in record time. Now, I don't know how many of y'all know Mike Hudgens back there, but Hudgens for a few years would give me a puzzle on my birthday. And, and he would say, here, I'll give you the solution. I would say, don't give me the solution. I'm going to figure this puzzle out. And I felt like I was in good company with Einstein because he could do it in two days and it would generally take me two years. And there's not that much... Di- I, I, no, he did it in two minutes, <laughs> excuse me. Takes me two years. I'm still working on the one from two years ago. But he had a mind that just put puzzles together. He loved to do it. It's one of his favorite pastimes along with playing the violin. Give him a puzzle, he liked to do it. He wrote puzzles for other people. Anyway, I like that story because I see you and I and I see the entire world as God's unique puzzle. And, and God's not an Einstein wannabe. So God as a puzzle master, God's unique puzzle, here's the difference between God's and even Einstein's brilliant mind. God doesn't take a puzzle that someone else writes and figure out the solution. God lets you and I, the pieces to the puzzle, God lets you and I pick our own shape. We get to decide, do we have three prongs in one hole or two prongs, two holes, whatever the size, shape may be, we get to pick our own shape. We get to pick our own color. We get to pick our own design. What I mean by that is you and I in our lives get to decide who we are. Not only who we are, but what we're going to do. And that's what we have the, the, that's free human choice. So you decide what you're going to do with your life. You decide where you're going to live. You decide what your occupation is going to be. You decide what you're going to eat for lunch. You decide how you're going to celebrate Father's Day. I've got a few suggestions for my kids. But it's your decision. You decide how you're going to walk. You decide, are you going to fall into this temptation or not? You make those decisions for you in your life. The bizarre part is that allowing every person to make their own decisions... God puts together the puzzle and the whole puzzle fits and is totally complete with what God intended. It's an amazing thing. It's the reason we have trouble juggling between what to us seem these competing concepts of predestination or or free choice. It's the reason we sit there and juggle and say, well, how do you blame Judas for betraying Jesus when it had already been prophesied that he would do so? Didn't God make him do so? No. That's the beauty of God's puzzle. 
God's puzzle is one that allows each of us to make our own choices, to decide our own shape, to decide our own color. And yet the entire puzzle, when put together, will reflect exactly what God knew it would reflect from the beginning. That's foreknowledge. That's divine sovereignty. So it's an amazing thing. And I really think that it's something we see clearly when we look at the Apostle Paul. And it's one reason I wanted to dwell on Paul for a couple of weeks as background information before we dig into the way God really was using his life. So as we look at the Apostle Paul, I think we're going to see that Paul was the one who picked who he was and what he did. Paul made his independent choices. Paul chose to be there at the stoning of Stephen. Paul chose to persecute the church. Paul chose to go to Damascus to continue his persecution beyond the city limits of Jerusalem. But while Paul was making these choices of who he was and what he would do, God made his puzzle complete with Paul being the perfect piece to fit in the perfect place for that puzzle to be exactly what God intended it to be. And it's an amazing thing to watch. We started this last week with that nice picture I took in the backyard. Paul was a man who had two feet firmly planted in two different worlds. We talked last week about him having one foot firmly planted in the Greek world. This week we'll talk about him having one foot firmly planted in the Hebrew world. And, 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 but we need to see them both. If you did not see or hear last week's lesson, it's in the handout or you can always view it on the internet. But we'll pick up with the middle of the handout this week where we look at the Hebrew lesson. In the process of that, um, I have a computer that just did something goofy, excuse me. In the process of that, we've thrown up a map last week because it's important that we understand what happens. Paul is born in Tarsus. Tarsus is a a, a Greek city of great import. Tarsus' leading product are scholars, people taught in the Greek tradition of philosophy. Now, we know ultimately Rome is the capital, but when we think back about antiquity and we think back about biblical times, if I were to say to you, where was the philosophical capital of the Greek world? Where, what was the happening place? I'm not talking about today, so keep Lubbock out of the picture. I'm talking about 2,000 years ago. It wasn't Athens... It was Tarsus. And that's what we read from Strabo, the geographer, last week. When he said that that the philosophers and the rhetoric and the wisdom coming out of Tarsus eclipsed that of, of Athens. Oh, I'm not saying Athens didn't have a richer history. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Heraclitus, Pythagoras. But back then, that was ancient history. At the time of Paul, the hotbed of rhetoric and wisdom and scholars was Tarsus. And that's where Paul hailed from. 
And that's why as we looked last week, you see him using so many Greek expressions and metaphors and ways of thinking and explaining things that communicated so well to the Greek world. But we're going to scale back a little bit now and go back to where the church and Paul first intersect. I used this quotation from a church historian last week that uh, uh, as we go back to Jerusalem, we'll see Paul there and Paul found the church, a small Jewish community with crude messianic conceptions. He left it a world organization in which there was neither Jew nor Gentile. And I really want us to to remember an illustration that I've used in this class because it's so easy for us to think globally today. We live in a global economy. We live in a world where uh, uh, I I was in, in England last week doing some work. And I found out I had to be in New York City the next day for a two o'clock meeting. And heavens, you just get on the internet or you call up a travel agent or a secretary assistant and you say, hey, you got to get me to New York tomorrow at two o'clock and then I still have to get home after that. And they set up services to get you from one place to another, to another, to another, to another. We live in a global world. We can internet our daughter Rebecca and some of her friends have a friend and his family who just moved to Brazil. Now, if someone had moved to Brazil when I was young, that's a death knell on your friendship. (laughs) Them? Oh, they're still talking 40, 50 times a day. They, they... (laughs) And that's the way they talk now anyway. It's really no different. <laughs> we live in a whole different way. Back then, it, it weren't so. Travel was precarious. The Roman mail system worked mainly for the Roman military. You wanted to send a letter outside of imperial service? You had to find someone you could pay and trust to deliver it. And, 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 and this whole church idea, this Jesus worship that starts in Jerusalem, I equated mentally, I think I used Chichi Castanenga, but uh, Larry came up and reminded me that that's not the lake town I meant in Guatemala. I meant Panahachel. Thank you, Larry. It's like someone in Panahachel, Guatemala, saying, hey, fisherman on the little lake, Lake Adidlan, saying, hey, The guy we've been following that died. He was resurrected and he's the hope of Guatemala. Doesn't that change the way you do business in Washington, D.C.? No. The hope of Guatemala is not going to become the hope of the world. Absent divine intervention. And absent a piece of the puzzle named Paul. 
Because Paul's able to step his foot and he's got one foot firmly planted in that Greek world from Tarsus and one foot firmly planted in that Hebrew world of Jerusalem. And he's going to take those feet by the grace of God and the power of God's spirit and he's going to just clomp all across the Mediterranean. That, by the way, took 20 minutes. You really better appreciate that slide. (laughs) We're going to do it again, okay? That's the kind of slide you don't just do once, okay? Here you go. He's clomping across the Mediterranean world. All right? Yeah. (laughs) Nearly missed class because of that one, okay? Anyway, so let's talk about Paul in Jerusalem. Let's go back in time. Paul, one foot in the Greek world, that was last week. This week, one foot in the Jewish world. The Hebrew world. These are the passages we want to look at. We want to look at Acts 22, 1 through 3. Then we're going to look at Acts 23, 6. Acts 26, verses 4, 5, and 10. And finally, Philippians chapter 3, verse 6. So with those passages, let's throw them up here. And let's look at them and make a couple of notes on them as we do. Then we'll come back and talk about the significance of these passages after, after we've, we've thrown them up here. So we start with Acts 22, 1 through 3. Let's see. Color, focus, size. 22, 1 through 3. Now Paul's been arrested. And Paul, you'll recall, we looked at this verse last week for what it said about him from a Greek perspective. Paul's been arrested. He's asked for permission to address the crowd. He asked the Roman tribune for permission to address the crowd. And he does so, speaking to the Roman tribune in Greek, Paul then addresses the crowd in the Hebrew language which most likely was Aramaic. That was the Hebrew tongue, if you will, or the Semitic tongue spoken by most Jews at the time. So here's what Paul says. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense I now make before you. When they heard he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And Paul says, I am a Jew. I was born in Tarsus, in Cilicia. Cilicia is the region that Tarsus is in. I was born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but I was brought up in this city. So at some point, scholars don't know exactly when, but at some point, Paul goes to Jerusalem. Now, when we read carefully through the book of Acts, we'll see that Paul had at least one sibling, most likely, in Jerusalem. Because when Paul's about to be ambushed, Paul's nephew comes and tells him. It's a reason I always look out for my nephews. Never know when I'm going to be ambushed. Need to have those nephews. He's educated at the feet of Gamaliel. He says, I was educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the laws of our fathers. Being zealous for God as all of you are this day. Brought up in Jerusalem, studied at the feet of Gamaliel. Paul doesn't explain who Gamaliel was here. Paul doesn't need to. They knew who Gamaliel was. That'd be like me trying to stand up here and say, I studied at the feet of Billy Graham. Now, you probably don't know who Billy Graham is, so let me tell you. Of course you know who Billy Graham is. 
I studied at the feet of Pope John Paul II. Do I have to explain to you who that is? Of course I don't. Gamaliel was someone... Paul was name-dropping, in a sense. Not in a bad way. In an affirmative, truthful, godly way. All right. So that's that passage. Now, the second one was Psalm, or Acts 23, verse 6. We'll come back and talk about these in a moment, but let's get them out in front of us. Here we're in a situation where Paul's before the council. They're trying to get Paul in trouble. Paul's being examined. And so Paul perceives that one part of the council are Sadducees. And Paul perceives the other are Pharisees. So Paul cries out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee. Look at that. We're going to highlight that. What verb tense is that? Present. Paul doesn't say, hey, I used to be a Pharisee before I became a Christian. Paul says, I am one. I'm one right now. I am a Pharisee. I'm a son of Pharisees. And it's with, it's with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. Now, once he says this, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees did not. Paul has encountered the risen Lord Jesus. So aside from being a Pharisee who believes in the resurrection of the dead, he's a witness to it. Paul has raised Eutychus from the dead out on the mission field. So when Paul says, hey, I'm a Pharisee, I believe in the resurrection from the dead, that's why I'm here. All of a sudden, the, the, the Pharisees among the group start saying, well, why are we arresting him for that? Is this trumped up by you Sadducees? Because the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. Sadducees believed you die, lights are out, party's over. So this big fuss arises between them. It's almost like Paul sees the opportunity, he puts it out there, they start fighting, and he just kind of says, hey, see you guys, and leaves. Not quite that way, but that's in general what happened. Okay, next passage in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 26. We want to look at verses 4, 5, and a little bit manner, later. Paul now is in front of King Agrippa. And Paul is providing his defense for being a rebel rouser, which is what uh, the Jews are insinuating Paul is. And Paul says the following, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem. So he lived in Jewish community, even from the beginning, even in Tarsus. It's known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. According to the strictest party of our religion, I've lived as a Pharisee. He goes on later to say in this, in verse 10, that uh, I did so in Jerusalem 
uh, 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 he's talking about all of the things he did to oppose Jesus in the church. I did these in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Now, scholars fuss over what this means. The apparent meaning of this is that Paul was actually among the Sanhedrin as a voting member and gave it that vote. Some scholars say, no, you had to be 40 and you were supposed to be married. And we don't have any evidence that Paul was married and 40 seems a little old for Paul. So they fuss with that. And they say what Paul means is, is he was just, hey, yes, I agree. It wasn't an official vote, but it was a supporting vote. We don't know. It does not appear that Paul's married on the mission field. That much is true, but, but that doesn't mean that he hadn't been married at some point in time and something had happened to his wife. Who knows? But uh, uh, at any rate, this is an additional passage. Now, the last one I want to give you is one of Paul's own writings. It's Philippians 3. And Paul says in Philippians 3, starting with verse 4, he's saying, hey, You guys who think you're something hot apart from Jesus, look, you got nothing on me. If you want to start bragging, throw this one out there. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I got more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. It's the right day if you're a Jew, wish boy. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, the Jews at this point have had captivity. They've had dispersal. Paul's in Tarsus, but he is able to trace his lineage all the way back to the tribe of Benjamin. That means he's not just a Jew. He's saying, I'm purebred. And we've kept the records. And we can document it. I am in that sense, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, how do I see the law? I interpret it as a Pharisee. As to a zeal, how willing was I to do what I thought was right? I would persecute the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. You won't find one I violated. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Amen is right. Can you believe this? I mean, Paul's one of two things. Paul is either an absolute whack job. Or he's a man who has been deeply convicted of the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Damascus Road experience was either something that may have been the result of bad mushrooms. Or it was something that was so real that Paul was willing to do a 180. Because we need to understand, you don't just go study at the feet of Gamaliel because you want to. Paul lived in a wealthy family. He had a lot of money. He had a lot of power. He had a lot of prestige. He was a heavy hitter. 
He was the up-and-coming golden boy. He was destined for greatness. He had the pedigree. He had the family. He had the wealth. He had the popularity. He was the one that the priests trusted to go persecute the church. They would give him a blank check to go do whatever Paul thought needed to be done. Paul had the authority to have people executed as blasphemers under the faith. He got that from the chief priests. This is not a guy who is just one of a million. This is a man so implanted in the Hebrew world that, that, that everybody, everybody knew who he was. He was the future and he counted it all as garbage and did a 180 and not only got rid of, gave away any opportunity at wealth, any opportunity at power, any opportunity at advancement. But he turned into a man who was willing to be beaten, shipwrecked, snake bit, robbed, everything because he was convinced deep in his heart of the truth of what he was about. It's an amazing story of an amazing man. And we unfold it, if we go back to the PowerPoint, we unfold it if we just look at some nuggets from this. So I want to throw up our chalkboard for a moment and I want to talk about some of these things because I want us to understand a little more fully what it is. We're going to start with the Pharisees. And we start with the Pharisees because I suspect you, like my, me in some ways, and, and, and certainly apart from my study, I suspect that you and many in our church, when you hear the term Pharisee, you immediately recoil or have a bitter taste in your mind. Yeah, those are the horrible people in the Bible. Those are the wretched ones. Those were the bad Jews. Hypocrite, put your H up. Well, we got three sources I want to talk to you about for knowledge about the Pharisees. Certainly one of them is the New Testament. We can read a lot about the Pharisees in the New Testament. A second is Josephus. And we'll talk about Josephus and see what he has to say about the Pharisees in a minute. And the third are rabbinic writings. Those are writings from the rabbis. After the temple was destroyed, when Rome just demolishes Judaism in Jerusalem in 68 to 70 A.D., And then again in the 120s. All of, you know, the temple's gone. Temple worship is gone. And so the rabbis take over. And the rabbis try to start reducing down into writing the teachings that existed before the destruction of the temple so that it would not get lost. Those early rabbinic writings are very relevant, not just on the Pharisees, but also on Gamaliel. So let's look at those together. We'll start with the New Testament. We know from the New Testament, without going through all of the passages here, but I've cited a lot of them in your handout, so you've got them. We know that the Pharisees were what I call rule followers. They were really good at putting together all of these rules and following them. Now you can say, I follow rules. And a lot of you do. But if you're a Pharisee, you don't drive one mile an hour over the speed limit at any time in your life. Your wife's having a baby. It's coming out any second now. 35 mile an hour speed limit. You're going 35. Wife says, hurry, hurry. I want the epidural. I want it now. 
You look at her, say, hush, woman, it's a 35 mile an hour speed limit and I will not exceed it. You'd pull that one off. You're starting to be a Pharisee. You're only starting, though. you got a long way to go. These guys followed rules like nobody's business. They had rules about rules. In the New Testament, we'll see that they washed their hands. That they not only tithed their income and things that they got, but if they went out in the garden because they're going to make some tabbouleh and they pick mint from their garden to make tabbouleh, one out of every 10 leaves they set aside to give to God. They tithe mint and cumin. These are the ones that get so upset with Jesus because he won't always wash his hands before he eats. These are the ones who, who have all of... You know, these are the ones who, if they see a Samaritan or they see someone unclean, they won't even walk on the same side of the street lest they accidentally brush something that that person has brushed. They will cross the street and they'll shout out to keep anybody else from sinning. Unclean! Look out! Don't get, don't, don't get near that person! Because that's who they are. They're rule followers extraordinary. As a result, some of them were hypocrites. Now I put some there. Because they weren't all hypocrites. But some were. Jesus made the point that some of them are a bunch of whitewashed tombs. They look so pretty and white. But inside all they've got is a bunch of dead Jesus made the point, you wash your hands before you eat, you ought to wash your heart. Because it's what proceeds out of a man's heart, hearts, a man's heart that makes him unclean. Woe to you, you hypocrites, Jesus says. Pretty gutsy, by the way. But, son of God, you're allowed to be that way. Some viewed themselves the moral police. It's not good enough to be a rule follower. If you're not following the rules, I'm going to point it out to you. They were Pharisees that brought the woman caught in adultery to Jesus and starts throwing it out to Jesus. Hey, the law says we're supposed to kill her. So do you want us to follow the law or you? Like they're going to trick God on the law. But they're the moral police. They're out there enforcing the morality on everybody else. Now, we need to remember, though, the New Testament tells us not all Pharisees were offensive. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Nicodemus came by night to Jesus because he wanted to hear him teach. Was respectful and kind and learned and may have become a believer. Because we read in Acts 15... When the church is having a council about whether or not Gentiles have to first become Jews before they can be Christians. That part of the debate among the church is from the Pharisee faction of the church. Because Pharisees were in the church. It wasn't just Paul. Nicodemus provides part of Christ's burial. Spices. 
So not all of the Pharisees are offensive in the Bible. Now, let's get rid of the, the, those passages for a moment and let's look at Josephus. <clears throat> I threw a picture of him up here for you. Josephus. I think we know this, many of us do, just from this class, if no other time. But we've got visitors and, and others who are here for the summer, so I want to make sure we're on the same page. Flavius Josephus was a Jew who fought in the insurgency, the Jewish rebellion in the 60s. He, he was, in fact, a captain over a brigade of Jews, the Jewish army, if you want to call it that. The emperor from Rome sends his son Titus in to squelch the rebellion. Titus does so, and Josephus surrenders his troops. And Titus does not have Josephus executed. Titus basically gets Josephus to swear an oath that he won't foment any more rebellion. And once that oath is in place... Titus uses Josephus to help him understand how Jews work and how they think and what's going on. In fact, Josephus, he goes back to Rome with Titus. And when Titus becomes emperor, Josephus in the 80s and the 90s starts writing his histories. And he writes a history of the Jews. He writes a, 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 a book on Jewish wars. He writes a book against Appion. And so we've got those writings of Josephus that date from about the time of the Gospel of John, the last, and, and the, the book of Revelation, something in that time zone, the last books of the New Testament. So we can go to what Josephus says about the Pharisees, and we can see it. If we go to the Elmo, I'm not sure this is going to fit. It's at the bottom of the page. Okay, I know you're going to cringe. I know, I know, I know. Cringe away. Here's the deal. I've done it before in this book, so I can do it again. This is my rip-up copy of Josephus, okay? Let's look at what he says in his book on Jewish antiquities. See how much better this is going to be? Okay. The Jews had for a while, a great while, three sex that's not quite fitting even there, is it? Okay, try it again. The Jews had for a while three sects or groups of philosophy peculiar to themselves. The sect of the Essenes. Most scholars believe that's the sect that was at the Dead Sea, Qumran, responsible for the Dead Sea Scrolls. The sect of the Sadducees. And the third sort of opinions was that of those called Pharisees, of which sect, although I've already spoken in the second book of the Jewish War, I'm going to touch a little bit more on now. So look what he has to tell us. Now for the Pharisees, they live meanly, frugally, and despise delicacies in diet. They don't eat the rich food. They're corny dog type people. They follow the conduct of reason. They're very logical. And what that prescribes to them is good for them, they do. They're rule followers. 
they think they ought earnestly to strive to observe reason's dictates for practice. They're very rational rule followers. They also pay a respect to such as are in years. They appreciate elderly people. Nor are they so bold as to contradict them in anything which they've introduced. And when they determine that all things are done by fate, they do not take away the freedom from men of acting as they think fit. Since their notion is that it's pleased God to make a temperament whereby what he wills is done, but so that the will of man can act virtuously or vicariously. Viciously. Big difference. So that the will of man can act virtuously or viciously. Here's what they're saying. It's not very different than what Paul says. It's not very different than I hope what I tried to say at the beginning. The Pharisees understood that while we look at this and we understand it's like fate. It all fits together like a puzzle. It all just, it, it's, it's exactly what God says it's going to be. His prophetic words come true exactly the way he says they're going to come true. But for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, out of you shall come forth one who will be a ruler of the people. Jesus is born in Bethlehem Ephratah, just as Micah foretold. I mean, the, the, all of that's precise. Yet... God still has it where man acts out of his own choice, choosing whether to do something that's, that's uh, what are the words, virtuous or something that's vicious. We get to make our choices. It just all fits into God's plan. That's the way the Pharisees understood it. They also believe that souls have an immortal rigor in them. The guy who translated this, Whitson, he's doing this in like 1900 or something. So excuse the, if I'd have had more time, I'd have, tried to translate it myself because it's written in Greek. It's, it's not hard Greek, but I didn't do it. Sorry. So instead you get immortal rigor in them. In other words, they believe in life after death and that under the earth, there'll be rewards or punishments according as they've lived virtuously or viciously in this life. The latter are to be detained in an everlasting prison. The former shall have power to revive and live again. Now, goes on to say that, that uh, these are the most popular ones. Contrast them next to the Sadducees because the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. They believe that souls die with the bodies. Josephus shows the accuracy of Luke and Paul's events. It's exactly the way it unfolded. You can keep reading in Josephus if you want to tear up more of the book. You can, you can find that um, uh, uh, this over and over and over that, that the Pharisees don't, <laughs> sure, why not? The Pharisees don't, don't just um, live by the Old Testament. They sort of have their own traditions that they added to this. This is something Jesus faults them for because they let the traditions of man trump the concerns and love and need of their neighbors. Here's the way Josephus says. He says, I'd explain as this. The Pharisees have delivered to the people a great many observances by succession from their fathers. Tradition. Tradition. Dun, 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 dun. Tradition. Which are not written in the law of Moses. It's another reason the Sadducees reject them. And they had fusses with the Sadducees. So they're very tradition-driven, if you will. 
These are the Pharisees, according to Josephus. If we go back, we look uh, uh, now at the rabbinic writings. The rabbinic writings um, uh, are in different groups. Uh, The Babylonian Talmud is about, uh, I don't know, about 15 or 20 volumes. Very thick and very tough to read. But it's fascinating reading. Because you can look in the Babylonian Talmud and they'll talk about seven different kinds of Pharisees. Seeing how we're doing time-wise. I may be going into too much detail. If so, sorry. Let's go to the Elmo for a moment. Let me tell you about these seven different types. So there are seven different types. One type, these are our Pharisees. Okay? One type... These are the worst of the worst. These are the type who do do right, they do right for the wrong reason. Yes, I'll do right. Yes, I'll follow the law, but I'm going to do it for the wrong reason. They're still a Pharisee. They're, They're doing what they're supposed to be doing. They believe the program, but for the wrong reason. Then there's a second type who does right and fakes humility. These are the people who do right, but have to email you and tell you why. These are the people who will do the right thing, but just make sure someone's watching when they do it. And if someone's watching, they'll pretend that they don't see, like they're doing it on their own. Okay? Third kind. By the way, this is an interesting insight. If you ever study this, and scholars write up on it a bunch, interesting insight as to how they valued what was important and what wasn't in life. A third type is someone who will do right, even if it hurts them. I'm willing to do what's right to my own detriment. I'm willing to keep my word even when I don't want to. And I don't have to. Then there's a fourth level who will do what's right, even if it hurts someone else. And the reference there is someone you love. So it's the kind of thing, it's, it's one thing to do what's right, even when it hurts me, but it's even harder for, for a Pharisee and for us to do what's right when it's going to hurt someone you care about. I don't mind doing what's right if it hurts me, But there's a line to be drawn. If it's going to do something to my dear wife, then I'm not going to hurt her. Time out. That's that's more valuable to me. That's number four. Number five. These are the people who do what's right out of duty. Now, that's not just duty. That's out of a religious duty. That's out of an understanding that this is what God has declared. So these are obedient people to God. And they're doing it because they feel motivated out of that God. Then there's a sixth who do what's right out of love. Might even be love for God. And then the seventh, those who do what's right out of fear. And that's the highest and best of all. And you're saying, what? Out of fear? Yes, to fear God's the beginning of wisdom. Fear does not mean I'm scared of him whipping me if I don't. Fear means an awesome respect and such a great regard. 
that they recognize that this is, this is God's highest and best good. And it envelops love and it trumps and envelops, I mean, care of others, care of self, duty, all of that is wrapped up. So these are, according to the rabbinic writings, the seven different kinds of Pharisees. Now, um, let's go back to the PowerPoint if we can. So Paul is a Pharisee. Which kind of Pharisee is he? Depends on where you find it. But by the end of his life, I can tell you what kind of Pharisee he was. One who feared God, loved God, and loved his neighbor. Now, Gamaliel, we know he studied at the foot of Gamaliel. We know Gamaliel from the book of Acts is the one who urged people to be a little more temperate. Now, Gamaliel is a first century rabbi at the time of Christ. But before Gamaliel, the generation before him, there were two major rabbis in Jerusalem that we know about. The real ultra-conservative rabbi, Shammai, and the more loosey-goosey rabbi, Hillel. Now, loosey-goosey is not loosey-goosey in our terms. I mean, he's still pretty strict, okay? But, for example, a story that we can read in the rabbinic writings about these two. Uh, Shammai, the ultra-conservative Jewish rabbi, has a Gentile come up to him, and the Gentile says, hey... If you can teach me your Torah while I'm standing on one foot, I'll convert. Making an insinuation the Torah is way too complicated for anybody to learn or live by. Shammai takes his rod, his staff, starts whacking the guy on the head saying, Get out of here. Get out of here. I don't have time for you. The same guy goes up to Hillel, the one who's a little more laid back, and says... If you can teach me your Torah while I'm standing on one foot, I'll convert. Hillel looks at him and says, hey, if you don't want something done to you, don't do it to someone else. Go convert. All the rest is just commentary. Very different approach. Hillel was the teacher of Gamaliel. And Gamaliel is in that school. Gamaliel was a lot more tolerant than Paul was. We can read about Gamaliel a lot. I've put some references in there, but some of the interesting things to me about Gamaliel, Gamaliel would go visit all the surrounding synagogues and would write them letters of encouragement. This is Paul's teacher. Paul learned early on the idea of go visit and write letters. Gamaliel, the early church thought, um, I say early church, Around three or 400 A.D., the church was convinced that Gamaliel himself had converted to Christianity. And they quote some early sources on that. Um, that's my cell phone. Just ignore it. Uh, <laughs> I should have turned it off. Um, uh, Gamaliel has these early sources that he converted. We don't know if he did or didn't. But we do know that Gamaliel was there. So with that as background... We're going to start following Paul through the book of Acts. I'm not going to have him tromp across on this slide. But you are going to see that him having one foot in Jerusalem and one foot in the Greek world is what made him that unique puzzle piece. And so we are. Points for home. Paul's on the road to Damascus. Paul's going to persecute the church. Paul's going to purify the, 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 the Jewish faith from this renegade, blasphemous idea that there's a Jesus who is Lord. 
that Jesus was Messiah. And while Paul is on the road, bent on his mission, focused on his mission, a bright light appears. Paul's blinded. Paul goes into Damascus, and while Paul is there, Ananias is told to go find Paul. And Ananias says to God, why do you want me to find him? He's here to persecute the church. This is a bad, bad dude. And God says the following, you go, for he is a chosen instrument, a tool, an instrument of mine to carry my name. Before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. He's my instrument. Now, here's my question for me. I got a decision to make. I can choose to walk God's path for me. Or I can choose not to. Don't get me wrong. If I choose not to, God's plan will be done. If Paul had decided not to follow the Lord, the church would not have died. But God in his plan had Paul in the key place he was as God's instrument, knowing full well what Paul would choose to do. You and I still make our own choices. We have the opportunity to paint our piece of the puzzle any way we want, to choose our shape. The question is, for me, how am I going to do that? And i got to tell you, I want God to be able to use me. I want to be his puzzle piece. I want to be part of his kingdom. It doesn't mean that all of us should be teaching these classes and writing these lessons for most uh, everybody. The, The answer is something much more simple. It's to love the people around you. It's to show the love of Christ. It's not to put confidence in who you are and what you're doing, but put confidence in Him who gave His life for you. James says, pure and undefiled religion is taking care of widows and orphans. Not teaching Sunday school. See, each of us are unique pieces in God's puzzle. And I just really want you to understand, it doesn't matter what you've done before. It doesn't matter if you haven't been paying attention to God. It doesn't matter if you've been persecuting the church. It doesn't matter if you've had one foot in Guatemala and one foot in Peru. Whoever you are, right now, at this point in your life, God has plans for you in his puzzle. And you get to choose to do it. And you can say, Lord, I hate all this junk before, but I thank you that as of today, I can in you be a new creation who does things the way you want. Use all of the garbage and turn it into something useful, please, in your kingdom. Redeem it. Next point for home. My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Paul never shied away from that. Holiness is a wonderful thing, but it needs to be real holiness. We need to be doing it for the right reasons. I get emails from folks who say, hey, here's something I'm doing. Help me figure out how to do this right or something like that. And it touches my heart. Because there are people who out of love and out of devotion are seeking to do the right thing before the Lord. And it encourages me. And I think I want to be that way. Real holiness is a marvelous thing. 
But we want to be the right kind of holy. We want to be holy out of love and duty and calling to God. Last, it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That passage in Philippians actually starts with Paul saying, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because or for it is God who works in you. It's this same concept. You work out your own salvation. You do what you know is right to do. And do it with fear and do it with trembling. Knowing that God's at work in you. And that he puts this together in his puzzle. And we can, at the end of the day, stand amazed and accepting of the puzzle master's hand. And it's hard to accept sometimes because he doesn't... The cards do not play out the way we would like them to. But as faithful children, we take the hand that's there and we honor God with it as best as we can, whether it's what we would pick or not. And then this life is over and then we go home. Would you pray with me? Father, it's uh, with mixed emotions that uh, I come to you leading this prayer right now. Recognizing how far I have and all of us probably have to go. But yet so desirous of being what you want us to be. Lord, would you please work in us? Would you work through us? when necessary, work in spite of us for your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We long to serve you and to be your children. We're just not very good at it sometimes. But we love you and we're honored to call you our Father in heaven. Through Jesus our Lord we pray. Amen.